It's time to start another book study, and this one is going to be in the Gospel of Mark. So open up your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 1, and allow me to introduce you to this next book that we'll be preaching here in our pulpit. It's going to take us about nine months. We start today, and then we will land right there on Resurrection Sunday in Mark chapter 16. So I'm on a schedule. I won't be able to divide sermons in two and three and four parts. Uh, We're going to have to stick with the plan because Resurrection Sunday is on the calendar. And it's surprising that I've been here for 14 years preaching in the pulpit. That's a lot of sermons. And in all of that time, I have never taught verse by verse through one of the four Gospels in the pulpit on Sunday morning. Yes, we have studied the Gospel of John in adult Sunday school a number of years ago, and I've taught portions from Matthew and Luke in the pulpit, but it's time to remedy the neglect of the Gospels because the Gospels are the very heart of the Bible, and they account for about half of the total material in the New Testament. These four books are large, Mark being the smallest of the four, but still, these four together form half of our New Testament, and it's really all about Jesus Christ, and that's why, the number one reason why, we are going to be studying the Gospels. But what about the Gospel of Mark? Why the Gospel of Mark in particular? Well, I've got a couple of reasons. As I was praying and talking through with the Lord what it was that we were supposed to study together next, There's several reasons why I think that the Gospel of Mark is the one out of the four that needs to be preached in the pulpit here. One, because it is to the point. You've got your Bibles open to Mark chapter 1, and you'll see that the ministry of Jesus begins in chapter 1, verse 14. Jesus begins his ministry is the title for that short paragraph in the ESV translation where it says, After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Mark only takes 13 verses to get to the preaching of Jesus Christ, the beginning of his public ministry after his temptation in the wilderness and his baptism by John. Whereas Matthew and Luke, they have a lot more front-loaded material, having genealogies, having the infancy narratives. So by the time you get to Jesus preaching the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel, that's chapter 4 in Matthew and Luke. And so One of the things I like about the Gospel of Mark is it gets right into the action and then it continues going through the miracles and the teaching and the acts of Jesus Christ at a very quick pace and so I appreciate that about it. And everything that is not in the Gospel of Mark that is in Matthew and Luke, well, We've talked about those things on other occasions. At Christmas time, we delve into the nativity stories. I preached the Sermon on the Mount, which is not included in the Gospel of Mark. Some of those long sections of preaching and sermons that are in Matthew are not in Mark. And so having done all of that, it just makes sense to focus on the shorter, more direct account of the Gospel of Mark. Also, the second reason why I want to study the Gospel of Mark out of the four Gospels, and particularly out of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is because we need to learn how to appreciate the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark has always been underappreciated, and I'm attracted to things that are underappreciated, and I want to show how wonderful they are. And so the Gospel of Mark, let me tell you, is neglected in our time, 
It was neglected in the early church, and I myself have often found it to be my least favorite of the Gospels, and I need to learn how to appreciate it more. As an example of how it's underappreciated in our time, the church that I grew up in in Lincoln, the preacher was there for decades, and he never preached through the Gospel of Mark. And, you know, it's it's interesting. And then you look at John MacArthur's ministry, as he undertook in his life to preach every verse in the New Testament, to go through every chapter in the New Testament. You know which book he got to last? The Gospel of Mark was the last one. It took him 30 years to get to the Gospel of Mark. Well, here, I'm there in 14 years, so I'm ahead of schedule. But even the early church also overlooked the value of this Gospel. And this is demonstrated by some statistics. Don't you love statistics? That people have done amazing studies in the early church. And one of the things they put together is a volume, a list of all of the quotations of the New Testament that the early church writers quoted. And so if you look through the third century quotations from the four Gospels, there are ten pages of quotations from the Gospel of Mark. And that might seem like a lot until you realize there's 120 pages for the Gospel of Matthew. So Matthew was quoted 12 times more often than Mark in the early church fathers in the third century. That's pretty startling. Now, Matthew was the favorite. Luke and John were quoted about 40 pages each, so about four times more popular than the Gospel of Mark. And the early church, they looked at the Gospel of Mark, and they thought, well, it's basically the Gospel of Matthew abridged. It just doesn't have some of the things that are in Matthew. And so why study Mark when you've got Matthew? And they kind of just ignored it to a large extent. But God has given us four Gospels for a reason, and there is a special glory that is here in the Gospel according to Mark, and I want to learn how to appreciate that, and I want you to learn how to appreciate that, and so that's why we are choosing the least favorite Gospel as the Gospel we are preaching in the pulpit. Now, let's talk about Mark. Who was Mark? It says there the title, The Gospel According to Mark, and I like that. That's a great title. There's only one Gospel, It's not the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke. No, it's the Gospel according to Matthew and according to Mark and according to Luke and according to John. There's one Gospel recorded by four different men. And this one is identified as Mark. But notice that the text itself doesn't identify Mark as the author, but only our Bibles have that title. And so, This is true of all four Gospels. None of the Gospels mention who the author is in the actual text of the Gospel. Not like the letters of the New Testament where you have Peter to the churches that are in Asia Minor or Paul to the churches of Galatia. No, these are anonymous in the text themselves and so you might wonder, how do we know who wrote these Gospels? Well, that's tradition. That's history. We have all of these church authors from the first centuries of the church who tell us who the authors of the first, second, third, and fourth Gospels were. Now, when it comes to the Gospel according to Mark, tradition identifies him as the author, and we have some references to him and how he wrote his Gospel. And this is interesting because we've been studying church history in our adult Sunday school, taking a little summer break, but we'll be getting back to that this fall. And so some of the names that I'll mention here might be familiar to you if you were part of our study in church history. Papias, who was an early leader in the church at Hierapolis, he was writing around 140 AD, and he was not just writing what he thought, but he was writing what he had heard from the Apostle John. As a young man, Papias was discipled by the Apostle John, and then as an old man, he wrote down a lot of the things that John had taught him. And so he said that Mark was the interpreter of Peter. 
And interpreter here kind of has the idea of somebody who takes someone else's message and goes and carries it to other people. Hermes was the messenger of the gods, and so the word interpreter here comes from his name, Hermes, hermeneutics, somebody who takes the message of someone else and then gives it to other people. So Mark was a disciple of Peter, and he took the things that Peter had said about the Lord Jesus Christ, and he wrote them down. That's what Papias told us. Justin Martyr also wrote around the same time, 150 AD, that Mark's gospel was the memoirs of Peter. So these early writers, they all identify Mark as the author, but they say that Peter was the source of the information that is in the gospel, the primary source. Now Mark, as we'll learn, had contact with other apostles. He was with Barnabas and Paul on their first missionary journey. He continued ministry with Barnabas later, and then he continues ministry with Paul later in life. So he had contact with probably many of the apostles, including the original 12 disciples. But most of his time and most of the influence for putting together this gospel came from Peter. Clement of Alexandria writes thus at the end of the second century of the church, Peter was publicly preaching the gospel at Rome in the presence of some of Caesar's soldiers, and uttering many testimonies about Christ. And when they asked him to let them have a record of the things that had been said, Mark wrote the gospel that is called after his name from the things that had been said by Peter. And so different parts of the church in Alexandria and in Hierapolis and wherever Justin Martyr was, I forget, all record unanimously that this is the gospel according to Mark as he learned it from Peter. And as you read through the gospel, you really do get that sense that this is someone who is relaying what Peter had been saying for years as he fed God's lambs the words of Jesus Christ after Jesus Christ had ascended and sent his Holy Spirit so that Peter could shepherd the church of God. And now we have the record of Peter's preaching, his teaching about the words and works of Jesus Christ in the gospel according to Mark. What a wonderful record. What a wonderful gift of God to the church. As you read it through, you sense that it is Peter. It records his failures, but it doesn't say as much about some of his good side that Matthew and Luke do. And so you see the humility of Peter coming through, that he's not telling stories about, oh yeah, and there was this time where I did this really great, amazing thing and was really faithful. But instead, he highlights his failures and his weaknesses as a man of God would Also, as you read through it, there's other indications that this definitely sounds like the way Peter would have told the story from what we know about him. It's especially vivid in accounts where Peter was present. Now, let's talk a little bit more about Mark. Who is Mark? Turn from Mark chapter 1 to the book of Acts. God has given us the Acts of the early church so that we can know a little bit of information about these men whom he used to write Holy Scripture. And so it's not surprising that the author of the gospel, Mark, shows up in the account of history of the early church in the book of Acts so that we have this inspired biographical background on the author of the gospel. Now, the first appearance of John Mark, as we call him, in scripture is in Acts chapter 12, verse 12. Here we have the story of how Peter is released from prison by the angel. He goes to the prayer meeting where they've been praying for him and they don't believe that it's him because they just don't think it's possible. And so Peter, he comes out of prison and he recognizes that God has set him free. And when he realizes what's happened in verse 12, 
And notice what it says. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. And so there's lots of Marys. There's also lots of Johns. And Mark is a pretty common name also. But here we call him John Mark because here we take his Roman name, Mark, and his Hebrew name, John, and put them together, which is not something they would have done. They wouldn't have called him John Mark. They would have either called him John or Mark. But so that we can be sure of which John are we talking about, we call him John Mark. And sometimes we just call him Mark because he's the only Mark that is of significance in the New Testament record. And he shows up a number of times throughout the New Testament. You come down to verse 25 in the same chapter and you see why he was introduced in the first place. In chapter 12, his name is mentioned, but then in verse 25, he becomes significant in the story. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem and when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So here, John Mark joins up with Barnabas and Saul, and then they are sent off on the first missionary journey in chapter 13. Now, there is a little problem with John Mark here in the book of Acts. We find out that he quits on the first missionary trip. You find that there in chapter 15. Come with me over to Acts chapter 15. Perhaps this is why Peter and John Mark got along so well with each other, understood each other. Peter had a moment of failure in his early walk with the Lord, and then he was restored by the Lord and did great service for the rest of his life. Well, John Mark also seems to have had some failure here in Acts chapter 15, but he learns from it, he overcomes it, and is forgiven and restored just as Peter had been before him. You come down to chapter 15, verses 37 to 39, and as they're preparing to go back to where they had proclaimed the word of the Lord on the second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And so you can see, Barnabas saying, hey, let's give John Mark another try. Let's bring him along with us. And Paul saying, no, that's a bad idea. He flew the coop from us on the first trip. He's not trustworthy. This is important stuff. We really need men we can rely on. We're not taking John Mark. And they really argue about it. You see there that it actually causes them to go different ways. Verse 39 says, there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. So here, this division, the Bible doesn't take a side. The Bible doesn't say who was right. Luke doesn't say that Barnabas was having the right view. Luke doesn't say that Paul was having the right view. Perhaps you have your own opinion. This is one of those areas where I think we can have our own opinion. But the good news out of this rift that developed over this issue is that you got two missionary trips instead of one. So you got Barnabas and John Mark going out, you got Paul and Silas going out, and God accomplishes his work one way or another. Pretty encouraging story. But that's not where the story of John Mark ends. He continues to be mentioned, and we find out that Paul comes to appreciate the young man, John Mark, as he continues to serve the Lord. And he mentions him in his greetings from his prison epistles. Paul, imprisoned in Rome at the end of Acts, writes a number of letters at that time to the churches and even to an individual, Philemon. And in his letter to the church at Colossae, he mentions greetings from Mark. He mentions there in Colossians 4.10 a little tidbit that we didn't know otherwise about John Mark, that he was the cousin of Barnabas. 
And so you start to wonder, you know, did Barnabas want to give him another chance because he was kin? And Paul was like, no, you're being biased because he's your cousin. I don't know. But that's one thing that Paul mentions there is that he is the cousin of Barnabas in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. But he sends greetings and he speaks warmly of John Mark. And he also calls John Mark his fellow laborer in his letter to Philemon. And so he recognizes him as a servant of the word, a servant of the Lord there as he is imprisoned after his second missionary journey. Now, the last mention that we have of John Mark, I want you to see in the Bible, is in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Remember how we talked about how greetings are such an important part of the New Testament. How is it that we are supposed to love one another? We're supposed to love one another with, with warm, genuine greetings. And you see that exemplified through all of the New Testament. In the book of Acts, in the letters, whether it's Paul or Peter or the letter to the Hebrews, there's all kinds of greetings going on. And here, as we come to the end of Paul's last letter, 2 Timothy, in his second Roman imprisonment, shortly before he's put to death, his greetings here mention Mark once again. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, he says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark, he's telling Timothy to get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Isn't that great? So we start off in the book of Acts and we find this young man who's ready to go on the missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas, and yet he flakes out and Paul doesn't want to give him another chance, but then he continues to serve the Lord. And by the end of Paul's life, Paul says, Mark is very useful to me. For ministry. So it's a great redemption story that you have as you just put the pieces of the puzzle together here, trailing the name of Mark throughout the New Testament. Now, go back to Mark chapter 1 and let's look at the first verse that's there. The gospel according to Mark begins with a title. He titles his own book, The Beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, you could just take this as an introduction to the first chapter, and it certainly works well as an introduction to the first chapter, but, but I'd like to think of it as a title for the whole book, that this book is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is continuing on today. It's continuing on here with each one of us, as Dan and Deb Badir were divinely appointed to share the good news of Jesus Christ with Cookie, as we heard about in the prayer time. The good news to the gospel of Jesus Christ, it continues to go and to change lives and to touch people. And it's a powerful, powerful thing. It's the most powerful force in the world today. Not ashamed of the gospel of God. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so don't be afraid to invite people to become Christians. Don't think, oh, that's too forward. I can't ask people to change their life. Yes, you can ask people to change their life. You can not just talk around Jesus Christ, not just talk about Jesus Christ, but actually tell people, I invite you to become a Christian, to follow Jesus Christ the way that I'm following Jesus Christ. It's the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. So don't be afraid to be bold with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here we follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ laid out for us in the gospel according to Mark, who was very bold and who went out and proclaimed the good news as we read in verse 14 at the beginning of the sermon. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, as we look at Mark, his gospel, among the four gospels, you want to keep in mind that these four books were used for evangelism, but they were also used for edification. 
So these books are not only good to share with those who need to learn about who Jesus is so they can believe in him and be saved, but these books are also good for us who do know who Jesus is and have believed in him so that we might grow in respect to our salvation. And I think each one of the Gospels was written for both purposes. Maybe the Gospel of John has a little bit more emphasis on evangelism and a little bit less on the spiritual growth of Christians, but certainly in the upper room discourse that we have at the end of the Gospel of John, the focus is on discipleship and how we can grow in following the Lord Jesus Christ. So all four Gospels, even though they are wonderful at evangelism, they're also very important for us, the church, to be able to grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when it comes to looking at the four Gospels, there's been a lot of ink that has been spilled, as the saying goes, over which Gospel came first and over who borrowed from who. Did Mark write first and then Matthew kind of expanded upon it? Did Luke write first? Everyone agrees that John wrote last. But when it comes to the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, synoptic means you look at things the same way. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. They include a lot of the same stories. They include a lot of the same teaching. And so people wonder, did Matthew copy from Mark? Did Mark copy from Matthew? And all that type of thing. And did Luke copy from both of them? And the way that I look at it is it's not really very important to understand who wrote first and who was editing who and, and all of that type of thing. And in fact, I don't really think that they were editing each other that much. Rather than Matthew coming along and saying, well, here's Mark's gospel, let me add in this stuff, or Mark coming along and saying, well, here's Matthew's gospel, let me take out this stuff, I instead think that each one of them were in the same sphere of people. They were all with the apostles. They were all uh, in the early church. They were all telling the stories and sharing the stories about, remember when Jesus did this? Remember when we were here? The apostles are talking about the remembrances of going to Capernaum and then traveling to Jerusalem and, and the upper room and what Jesus told us and all of that. And they're just hearing these stories over and over again. And so they're all writing them down without needing to copy off one another. They're not copying each other's homework. This is just the preaching of the early church being written down by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so there's a lot of cross-pollinization. There's a lot of interaction going on between Peter and Paul and Matthew and the other disciples that is formulating the individual Gospels. And it's too complicated to unravel. And, and what's really the point of trying to unravel all of that anyway? I'm here to preach Mark. I'm not going to be preaching Mark and Matthew and Luke. I'm here to preach Mark, and I'm going to focus on that. There'll be some times where I bring in something from Matthew or bringing something from Luke or John, but that's not my purpose. My purpose is to teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and to treat each book as it stands on its own, not where it came from, not how it is fitting in with the other four. If you're really interested in chronologies and you want to know exactly what happened when and are there contradictions between how Matthew and Mark and Luke record these events, there are some great books out there that have, that have done that. I'm not going to be doing a lot of that in our sermon series on the Gospel of Mark, but there are harmonies of the Gospel that will show you how all the pieces of the puzzle fit together, and they're not, in fact, contradictory. But I'm going to try to just focus on Mark, and I don't care who was written first. I don't try to pretend to know where they got all of their information, but I do think that Mark got most of his stuff from Peter. All right? So, the question then also arises... Why does God give us four Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Obviously, the first thing is because God wants to emphasize the importance of this story. When I was young, and I was madly in love with my girlfriend, and my family took me on vacation, and I wasn't able to see her for a week and a half, I didn't just bring one picture 
of my girlfriend with me. I brought all the pictures I had of my girlfriend. And I looked at all the pictures. And so that's the way it is with Jesus Christ. We love him, and we don't just want one portrait of him in the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Luke. We want many stories. We want many books about the Lord Jesus Christ, and we want to read them all, we want to cherish them all, because we love him so much. And so as you see the portrait of Jesus Christ in each one of these four diverse books, and yet they have so much similar content, you get a much fuller understanding of who Jesus Christ is, and you have driven home to you how important the life of Jesus Christ is. And we'll be talking more about that as part of our conclusion this morning. Secondly, God has given us four Gospels in order to verify the historical truthfulness of these accounts. There's an apologetic purpose in the four Gospels. Simon Greenleaf is famous for having written his book that explores this in great detail. Simon Greenleaf was a legal expert at Harvard. He wrote a book called The Testimony of the Evangelists in 1846, back when believers could still work in Ivy League schools. And he demonstrated quite powerfully how each independent source was shown to be reliable because they added different details or omitted certain details that showed that they had not colluded. They weren't just copying from each other, and they weren't just coming up with stories and saying, okay, when they ask us about this, this is what you say. There was not that kind of collusion going on, but instead you have many different eyewitnesses coming together, each giving a different perspective, each giving a different angle, sometimes appearing to contradict one another as in the resurrection accounts most notably. There's been a lot of discussion over how do you harmonize Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's account of the resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ, first at the tomb with the angels and the women, and then later on as he made his appearances to the disciples. Many people have thought that there are contradictions there. And in fact, those apparent contradictions, which are not real contradictions, and you can find all the explanation for how those pieces of the puzzle fit together, it actually shows the truthfulness of these gospel writers in that they are writing independently and yet they are agreeing even from their differing perspectives and differing details. So there's a great apologetic value in having four accounts of the most important events in the history of the world. So the importance of it, the defense of it, and the complete picture that we get from the four Gospels is why God has told this story to us not once, not twice, not even thrice, but four times. And so, as we look at the four Gospels, let's take a quick look at the uniqueness of each one. Matthew may be written first, if you're interested in that type of thing. I believe Matthew was written first. Written to the Jews, It's got the Jewish genealogy, it's got Jewish terminology, it's got Jewish themes throughout it. Its purpose is to demonstrate to the Jewish people that Jesus Christ is their Messiah, the one who was promised to them in the Old Testament scriptures. The Gospel of Luke, written primarily to the Greeks, demonstrating that Jesus is the perfect God-man who has come to save us. The Gospel of John, also written to the Gentiles, demonstrating more so than any other Gospel, although all the Gospels do demonstrate, that Jesus is God. The divinity of Jesus Christ really on full display in the Gospel of John. Think about different people that are being written to and different elements of the character of Jesus Christ that are emphasized in the four Gospels. But what about Mark? Who was Mark written to and what are the unique emphases about Jesus Christ? What do we learn about Jesus Christ from the portrait in Mark's Gospel as compared and contrasted with the other three? 
Well, Mark, as history tells us, and as the text itself bears out, was written to Romans, Roman Christians and Roman non-Christians who were interested in the story of Jesus Christ. How do we know? Well, church history tells us that, but also, when you look at the text itself, we find that Mark translates a lot of the Aramaic terms that Matthew does not, so that his Greek-speaking Roman audience would understand the terms. He explains Jewish customs instead of assuming that people know what Judaism is like. He uses Latin terms that have been transliterated into Greek because he's writing to these Romans. And he uses Roman time throughout his book as well. Also, there's not as many references to the Old Testament scriptures as many of the Romans weren't as familiar with the Old Testament, although it still plays an important part in the teaching of Jesus Christ, Mark himself only quotes from the Old Testament once, although Jesus quotes often and Mark will include those references to the Old Testament in the teachings of Jesus. So we know it was written to the Romans, to the church, and to those who were interested in Christ. And Mark is written to focus on the actions of Jesus Christ, that he is a man of action. And as you see, he gets immediately into the action in chapter 1, and then he goes boom, 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 from story after story, and one of his key words that we find in the gospel is the word immediately. Look there in Mark chapter 1, verse 21. They went into Capernaum, and immediately, on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately, there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they were questioning among themselves, saying, Who is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, immediately, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region. So this word immediately is repeated over and over and over again, so much so that it, it kind of turned me off the first few times I was reading it. it just, he seems to put this in in some places where I'm like, do we really need an immediately right there? I think what Mark is doing throughout all of this is he is moving things forward, and he's trying to show you that I'm just going very quickly because the life of Jesus Christ was so full and so many things were happening That, as John said, it's impossible to write everything that happened. And you get the sense that Jesus was just tirelessly working to the point of exhaustion during these three years. And it's just one thing after another immediately. And you get the sense that Peter was worn out by all of this. And that Peter was just in this whirlwind of things happening around him during the life of Jesus Christ. And what Mark is trying to do with this approach and this word is to draw us into what it felt like to be there. See, Mark's style is to put us in the action as much as he can and to make it as exciting for us as it was for the disciples who were there with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so many people have noted that Mark is a book that's not so much meant to be read on your own in a quiet place, but it's a, a work that is meant to be read out in public in dramatic fashion. And there's even been some very good productions put on where actors, people who are skillful in oratory, will deliver the Gospel of Mark as an oration. And you kind of get the sense that this is what it would have been like in the first century to be around Peter. And Peter's telling you his stories, and he's got you just hanging on every word because Peter's such a good storyteller that this is more of a spoken word gospel than a literary type gospel like Luke. And that might be one of the reasons why people haven't appreciated it properly. 
People look at the Gospel of Luke and what a great writer he is and what quality literature he's produced. And they look at Mark and it's like, eh. But Mark's not supposed to be a literary work. It's supposed to be a work of spoken word. And so if you love spoken word, if you love dramatic action, then the Gospel of Mark is for you. And if you're going to make a movie out of the Gospels, well, the Gospel of Mark is probably the one to use because it's got the action, it's got the suspense, it's got the storytelling. Peter and Mark were very good at this, and that's why God gave us the Gospel of Mark so that we could be there. We could experience what it's like to be in this whirlwind of ministry that was happening around the Son of God in the flesh. Now, as we come to our conclusion this morning, we want to focus on the person of Jesus Christ. This is where we began. Why are we studying the Gospel of Mark? Because it's all about Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the heart of our faith. He's the heart of the Christian message. And this is what we want to learn about. And so as we go through the Gospel of Mark, we're going to be learning not only about the person of Jesus Christ, who was he, what motivated him, what was his drive, how did he interact with different kinds of people, with the rich, with the poor, with men, with women, with insiders, with outsiders, and to see how he carried himself and conducted himself as this is the account of the only perfect life that has ever lived. There's one person who's lived a perfect life and we get to read about him, we get to learn about him. So as we do that, we're going to learn how to follow him. The life of Jesus Christ is a life that is given to us as an example, a life to follow. And this is a point that Mark makes repeatedly throughout his gospel as he records the words of Jesus Christ, the command given in chapter 1, verse 17, chapter 2, verse 14, chapter 8, verse 34, and chapter 10, verse 21, the command, follow me, follow me. Jesus Christ was not a solitary lone worker, but he was a man who had called 12 disciples to come and follow him, and those disciples had gone out and told other people, this is the way, the truth, and the life. Follow him. And the Apostle Paul went around and he traveled and he preached to all kinds of people in all kinds of cities, and and he said, imitate me the way that I imitate Christ. And so as we learn about Christ, we learn about him so we can follow him. We learn about him so that we can imitate him. I'd like to show you four verses here in closing that are just about that that will motivate us to study the Gospel of Mark and all of the Gospels, but particularly for our purposes, Mark. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, For to this you have been called. All right, here's your calling. What's your calling? Your calling is Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. That would make a good title for a book, wouldn't it? In his steps. Uh, somebody should do that. And We follow him in his example as someone who suffered. Now, throughout the gospel, I've been reading it, I've been studying it, I've been meditating on it, you see that Jesus Christ is a powerful person. He is a person who is in control. He always has the right response to the most difficult questions. He's always got the power to overcome any situation he's facing, whether he's walking on water or casting out demons. This is a powerful, capable person. But he didn't use his power to serve himself. But he was going around and being a servant of others, even to the point of death on the cross. And so we are called to follow the example of Jesus Christ. We should suffer the way that Jesus Christ suffered. Use the power that God has given you, natural power, but also the spiritual power, the Holy Spirit, to suffer for the sake of serving others. The most powerful, the most glorious, the most amazing person who was ever on this earth used his power and his glory and his talents to serve the weakest and the lowest of people. That's our example. That's what it means to be a Christian. And then the second verse I want you to think about, 
is 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. All right? So you say you're a Christian. You say you want to follow the Lord. Well, you've got to walk the walk. And here is the record of the walk. You've got to do it this way. The disciples, they didn't go to a class to learn how to be Christians. They followed Jesus around from town to town. They ate with him. They worked with him. They ministered side by side with him. And that travel time, that work time, that eating time, they were always learning. How do I live? How do I treat people? How do I respond? How do I motivate myself? All of that you learn from walking with the wise. And so that's what we are. We are the dwelling of God in the Spirit. Imitate those who are walking according to the example that we've learned in Jesus Christ. And we're going to keep on learning it and putting into practice what it means to be a Christian as we study the gospel according to Mark. The third one, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. There it says, we are looking to Jesus. So you have to know who Jesus is by actually memorizing and meditating on the stories about Jesus. So you look to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. We're not following any human leader merely, but we have the Lord of glory become a human being who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He is the one that we get to look to and follow. And notice what Hebrews emphasizes. The joy that was set before him caused him to endure the cross. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, while covering the life of someone who lived approximately 33 years, they focus on 50 days of his life. Everything that is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John takes place in about 50 days. You know, now it's over three years of public ministry, but there's a lot in those three years, which would be like 1,000 days, And it's only 50 of those days that we have any record of. But of those 50, the last week gets way more attention than anything else. Like half of the Gospels are about the last week in Jesus' life. It's about how for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so everything that comes at the beginning of Mark's Gospel, all the power of Jesus, all the wisdom of Jesus, all the strength of Jesus, it's all to show us how he used his perfection in order to sacrifice himself for our sins, and that was his goal, that was his purpose, that's why he came. And so we look to him, and we suffer well like he suffered for the sake of the gospel, for others. All right, so then the last one that I want us to think about as we think about what we're going to get out of spending this time with the Lord Jesus Christ through the preaching of Peter and the pen of Mark is that we all, with unveiled face, will be beholding the glory of the Lord. That's what we'll be doing for the next nine months in the gospel of Mark. Beholding the glory of the Lord. And as we do that, we will be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Isn't that great? You have a certain amount of glory that you've already been transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, but it's going to continue on. And each time you behold Jesus Christ with the eyes of faith, he transforms you more and more. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, a great scripture verse to keep in mind all through our study of the Gospels. If Romans was the most important book ever written, Well, Christ is the most important person who ever lived. And that's why the Gospel of Mark is a great follow-up to our study of Romans.